Hello and welcome to Twig 267. Today we have Philip Black, Game Economist at Game Economist Consulting. Power World takes are loaded. Yes, it's going to be a Power World centric day and Phil calling him from Paris and hungover as shit. So hopefully he'll be with us. Energy high today. Bonjour. <laughs> Eric Kress, principal at Gossamer Consulting Group. What's up, punks? Laura Taranto, Senior Director of Product at Big Fish. Hello. And me, I'm Jen Donahoe, Strategic Marketing Consultant at Beta Hat and Jade Inferno. Howdy, everyone. Okay, Phil, I want to say that challenge accepted. I watched this, the Halo Season 2 trailer, 100% fewer gross sex scenes and 100% more of what everyone actually wanted from this TV show to begin with. Apparently the actor who plays Master Chief actually agrees with us because there's an article on Games Radar where he's like, I begged them not to include the sex scene, but they did anyway. And so I feel like we are justified in our take. And, and by the way, I think Microsoft even got hit with this because they have come out and said that Halo Infinite's current fifth season is going to be its last. The studio is devoting some of its teams to new projects, according to VGC. So you should have voted for me. You should have voted for me in the Twig Awards. I voted Halo Infinite as a huge disappointment. You missed out. I think I'm like the winner now. But five seasons for your marquee franchise after they shipped the Forge late? The UGC mode? Are you kidding me? Like, Microsoft, <laughs> it's the new EA. It's where studios go to die. It's where franchises go to die. This is really sad. Microsoft keeps delivering, you know, eh, you know, but they still have a great subscription product, but they're not selling consoles. So what exactly do they have again? They got a TV show. Terrible. <laughs> yeah, I'm sad. Yes. Speaking of another franchise, Laura, did you finish a magic one? So all that hype for Hogwarts Legacy, I actually went and finished the entire game. Well, I had a little bit of help, but I had to understand what all the hype was about. And have any of you played it to any extent? No MTX, don't care. I watched my kids play it. <laughs> what? <laughs> you care about Power World. <laughs> true, true. It was much better than I expected. The only thing is that I understand why the completion rate for the game was cited way back when as people weren't finishing it. The systems are great. They're layered in well. The only issue is they don't foreshadow all the things to come. That game is one of the biggest games I've played in a very long time. If anyone wants to pick it back up, I think it's worth it. It's pretty good. All right, moving on to shills. So the Istanbul Gaming Summit is coming up on the 8th of March, and it's an invite-only investor meeting. So I think pre-registration is up now, so go and join us. Still in the works, but we're hoping to have an exec from Scopely there to talk Monopoly Go and a bunch of other things. I'm trying to get Mishka to let me do a fireside chat with them so that I can interrogate them like we're on an episode of Law & Order. So look out for that. It could be super exciting. Also, I don't get anything for this, but I just saw that the GameCraft podcast is back for season two, Mitch Lasky and Blake Robbins. This was a must listen for anyone who's new to the game industry. Even if you're OG, the stories were fantastic. I think it drops today. Today is January 24th. Double down on that recommendation. It's a great listen to season one. Oh, I... I didn't know about it. So I came late to the party and I know a lot of the people and the stories. And what I love is it feels like it's very accurate. And you know these guys, right? Cress, don't you know Mitch? Yes. I don't know him personally, but the, yeah, the stories are amazing. Like they all resonate, you know, like there's these like stories of old that people tell in a regular, but he was actually there and participating in it. You know, someone like myself was more like on the periphery, like hearing about him, you know, but he actually was part of it, you know. So it's really worth listening to Awesome for anybody that wants to know about the history of the gaming space. Speaking of more podcasts, we're going to have another podcast dropping in the Deconstructor of Fun feed. It's going to be a brand new thing. Laura, what are, what are you up to? I think this might be my first shill. I don't think I've ever really shilled anything except for the DOF conferences. But for all of the mice nuts kind of games that we talk about and even the kind of the big one, we're going to basically do a product deep dive. I think that's the name we've coined, Jen. Yeah. Sign up the marketer to get a really insightful, interesting name like Product Deep Dives. So the first one <laughs> is going to be 
whiteout survival and century games. We threatened to do it on a twig, but then we decided we had so much to say that we're like, well, let's start an individual podcast for that. So look out for that in the coming weeks. Okay. Another update for the China saga, as they said, is that they pulled down the regs that they put up on the website and stocks all went up like five to 10%. So it's like, it looks like this may not happen, but we shall see. But that's the latest update. So buy Netties, buy Tencent. I'm just kidding. I don't give recommendations for stocks, but it looks like they may be in the clear this round anyway. All right. So quick hits. All right. A couple of updates from all of the big industry folks. So New Zoo has new numbers. The global games market is expected to generate $189.3 billion in 2024. They're calling it a lean year. It has a little <laughs> bit of growth, but not much. They said that 23 came in at $184 billion, which was a small 0.6% increase over 22 which itself was down 5% year on year. So here's a little bit of the color that they added. It's optimistic for PC and console segments in 24, while mobile gaming is likely to recover after difficult conditions for the past couple of years. I think we've been saying something like this, Chris. You know, I think the Nuzu guys have found some new religion or something, right? Because the whole tone of it sounds different, you know, compared to just a year ago, right? So when they're revising all their numbers down, and so maybe different people in charge, right? Kind of like setting expectations more accurately. How about that? But I I agree. I totally agree with it. I mean, I can't even pick this apart. I actually, it makes total sense to me. I think mobile is still a little bit questionable depending on what they do with privacy stuff this year between Google and Apple. That could actually hurt the market. But yeah, I think News is doing a great job now. My God, they should put a quote of that on their LinkedIn, like <laughs> Scopely did for us last week. I mean, dude, but the, you know what? They canceled all these bullshit reports about fucking VR and fucking streaming and all that other stuff, and they're just getting to what matters. Yeah, fair enough. They had a lot of esports stuff too over the years that has gone away oh, as well. God, please. Yeah, yeah. All right, moving on. So, Circana, formerly MPD. They have an update for the U.S. market. So Matt Piscatella, if you don't follow him on Twitter or LinkedIn, you should. He always puts out a lot of free gems. So here's what came out. He did a kind of the top games of the year. And Warner Brothers and Avalanche's Harry Potter game was the first non-Call of Duty and non-Rockstar game to top the charts. This is U.S. physical goods since Rock Band in 2008. So this is pretty big news that Harry Potter came in number one, beating Call of Duty and beating what used to be in the charts in the past, any Grand Theft Auto products. So the U.S. spending on games, hardware, and accessories in 23 reached $57 billion, up 1% from 2022. PlayStation was the top console. I think it's like 3X more than Xbox. While second place was the Switch and Xbox series. Both of those declined in sales. So that was according to Matt's release of information. Declining sales for consoles in the U.S.? Yes. I mean, that's crazy. That's crazy. Like, how much money has Microsoft spent on this business and they can't grow hardware in the third or fourth year of the cycle in, like, a huge year for software? It's a fucking disaster. It blows my mind. Paw World Bump is coming. <laughs> Just buckle in. Paw World is going to ship consoles. We're going to do special console editions with Paw World. <laughs> Oh, Phil, sweet child. Oh, they did get the exclusivity on a big game this they year. They did, I'll give them that. yeah. And it, arguably they have a better lineup than Sony this year. We should actually talk about that later. But anyway, we'll see. All right, moving on. So GDC, actually, I don't know if any of you signed up to get their emails. They did a survey of the game industry. They released their report of the 2024 state of the industry. One of the things I saw that was kind of interesting was 49% of survey developers said that AI tools are already in use in the workplace, 31% that they're personally using AI. Of those using it, the majority said 44% finance. (laughs) I was like, really, you survey all this? And then almost half are using it in finance. The other ones are community and production management trail close behind. So we're not seeing it in like art, voice, any of the concerning areas just yet, but check out that report. There's a lot of stuff in there. Oh, are they using ChatGPT to write their Excel formulas? 
I mean, I'm guilty of that, but I can't think of a lot of use cases for it. Well, evidently, you can throw data sets into ChatGPT and they can analyze it for you, like almost immediately, like making people like me completely obsolete, you know? Yes. (laughs) There there goes my job. I wasn't going to say it, but I thought it. (laughs) And Phil gave two thumbs up for that. (laughs) Chris, watch out. All these accountant monkeys out there. That's over, dude. It's freaking over. It's super challenging. And it wouldn't be a twig if we didn't mention Netflix. So they had their earnings call yesterday. And so Justin Roos from our Deconstructor of Fun Slack. So if you're not already in our Slack channel, go to deconstructoroffun.com to apply. So for Netflix's fourth quarter shareholder letter regarding gaming, it's still the early days for our gaming offering. Engagement tripled last year. And despite games being small and certainly not yet material, Relative to our film and series business, we're pleased with this progress. For example, Q4, we debuted the Grand Theft Auto trilogy from Rockstar Games. This has become our most successful launch to date in terms of installs and engagement, with some consumers clearly sign up simply to play these games, probably because they were confused that these are back catalog games. I think I saw Neil Long from MobileGamer.biz reported they had 15 million installs of this when it came out like a month ago or two months ago. Is this really big news, no, do we think? No, this is irrelevant. And rehasting <laughs> Sun signing up does not count. Some <laughs> customers clearly signing up to play these games. I mean, come on. Like, give us something to chew on besides that. And your biggest success is, what, a 20-year-old franchise? Like, the whole point of at least this games initiative is to grow and to expand the original IP that Netflix has to offer, like Stranger Things, which they have a puzzle game for, and they still haven't been able to do that. Like, if you look at those top downloaded lists, there are very few original IPs on there. They're still just buying old shovelware and just throwing it onto the subscription service, like Dead Cells. It's not a success at all. It's not even close to it. And again, we were talking about it last week. They're spending a billion dollars a year on this. It's not a small amount of money, and they spend $16 billion on other content so that's a six seven percent allocation that's a real opportunity cost of capital like this thing needs to produce money at some point or i think netflix is going to sever the cord yeah the rumor was they spent over 50 million dollars on these three games to put it on the surface so back catalog (laughs) these three chotsky games that were terrible like when they launched on console i haven't actually heard of how the performance is on mobile but i can't imagine it's fun but according to the company, they uh, got tons of people downloading it, signing up for the service. Jeez. Oh, All right. What else is making money, Chris? Former Playdemic founders have spun up a new Manchester-based studio called Four Star with $10 million in seed from Griffin. Holy crap. Griffin is like on fire these days. They must have money to allocate so they can get their management fees. U.S.-based AR and MR headset maker Magic Leap has received $590 million in debt financing from the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund. Bringing the total investment in this failed company (laughs) to $4.5 billion, right? They want to expand their immersive technology and focus on collaborative spatial applications. Fucking bullshit. That's what that all is. I'll just tell you great up. So I actually looked at this a little bit. They're looking to be more focused on B2B type things where it's like complex 3D procedures like fucking surgery and stuff like that. This is, I don't think they're really going after the games market or the productivity market the way Apple is. So that was according to the article. But I mean, this is like burning money. I don't even know what is happening over there. But then again, I know nothing about like 3D surgery. So perhaps they will win that and make a business out of it. All right. Layoffs, employment closures, Pixelberry Studios which is a really unfortunate name, by the way, just to be clear. They are developing interactive fiction, and they are laying staff of QA, product art, and engineering. And someone wrote a note here that they may, this must be a sign of things that are bad. Well, most likely, it's, not, it's going to get worse before it gets better over there. Yeah. Before you go on, this is Choices. And Laura, you can probably back me up on this. Interactive fiction. We talk about this all the time as like the content furnace of content furnaces on mobile. If I had to read the tea leaves, I think that this is going away. So Nexon owns Pixelberry. This is a big deal. Choices is always in the top 50, top revenue. It is a big deal. Like this is not a Mice Nuts game, Chris. This is actually like a $100 million plus annual run rate, like big deal game. So something to pay attention to of why isn't AI helping 
these types of games and maybe one day they will. Anyway, don't forget, Netflix is going into that space. They are literally coming after the interactive fiction group. Well, they have all kinds of money, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, maybe they'll land on their feet with Netflix. Speaking of landing on their feet, uh, 100 people were laid off at uh, YouTube and some people in the YouTube gaming space, including our old colleague, Leo, who I knew at EA back in the day. And he was at a Google for like a couple years, evidently. But dude, Leo has been everywhere. Dude, that guy has literally worked at almost every company in an interactive space. He's been at Google, Facebook, Zynga, EA, Gazillion, Kabam, WebZen, Warner, Disney, Vivendi, few startups, his own consulting firm. Jesus Christ, making me feel a bit pedestrian, you know, in this industry. So the only choice he has left, I think, is going to Netflix. So maybe that's where we'll see him next, right? <laughs> yeah. Leo's a friend of the pod and a friend. And I worked with him at Zynga, actually. And so sorry to hear the news. It gets rough. And it gets more rough, too, when you go on to the next bullet, which is as an EA alum, you know, Riot just laid off 11% or 530 people, many of which are friends and just rock star people. So super, super sad to see them go. So I actually really didn't get into the details about what was happening, or did they actually say exactly what they were cutting? Yeah, they did. They had a post. So number one is something that Riot is excellent at is transparent communication and empathetic communication for players and also for workers. So they came out and they said, listen, you know, they have too many things going on. So they're going to cut back on Legends of Runeterra, the CCG. I think they're only going to focus on the PVE mode. And then they're cutting and sunsetting Riot Forge, which was basically the licensing efforts for the Riot IP to developers to do like single player games. And so that's going to go away. I think they're actually cutting a little bit in R&D. And I'm a little shocked they didn't say anything about esports. They didn't talk about any reductions in esports, which has been, you know, as we made fun of earlier, a place where they spend a lot of money. So those are a few of the places they are taking care of the people. Like, again, with all of the layoffs going on, if you are a company needing to lay people off, go look at this post and see what it feels like to do something really nice for the people that you're offboarding in a way that makes them feel as, as good as you can in the moment. I think they did a nice job. I, I mean, the severance, I mean, it was, it was crazy. It's crazy what they were offering these people. Six months of base salary, cash bonus equivalent to, it looks like 100% of your target bonus for the year paid out now. And of course, we're talking January, so you're going to get that all up front. Your health benefits are extended for six months. You get a wellness fund. Your equity looks like it's going to be vested. You get to keep your computer, your laptop from the company, which I've never seen that before. They have career support, assistance programs, visa support. That's actually nice to see. That's not gratuitous. I wish more companies did that, especially for foreign workers as, as an expat myself. And I will also say, like to your point, Jen, like they didn't cut away email access immediately, which always can feel like a little bit of a burn. But wow, that is quite the exit package. Uh, I actually have a friend over there who who texted me and, you know, for what it's worth, said, said he wish he was laid off. I mean, this is very similar to the Epic package. These are very generous. So at least if you are going to say goodbye, this is the way to do it. Yeah, agree. So I applaud them for that. Some of the people getting laid off, I have questions about. They are in some of the areas, but that is the typical thing that happens where some of it gets a little personal and some of it gets, you know, business minded, but that's just my take. Hey game devs, are you tired of dealing with complicated payment processes all over the world? Well, Exola's got your back with Exola PayStation. It has a simple, user-friendly interface that makes it easy for players to pay for your games and in-game content however they want. And because the Exola PayStation user interface is adaptive and accessible on smartphones, tablets, and PCs, your players will have a seamless experience no matter their preferred device. Players can save their favorite payment methods for future purchases, and on mobile, even charge purchases directly to their phone carrier bill. On the back end, you can customize your checkout with game-specific integration options like sidebars and iPhones frames, as well as change colors, fonts, and images to make PayStation look and feel like a natural part of your game. Ready to see Exola's PayStation in action? Visit exola.pro slash payments dash DOF or visit the link in this podcast description. I wanted to talk to you about Heroic Labs. Building a successful game is hard enough without worrying about building your own game tech as well. 
Heroic Labs provides a comprehensive game stack to help you get your game into market faster and scale beyond the competition. With their Unity game framework Hero, you can cut development and prototyping time in half and quickly add social, economy, and reward systems to grow your game. Satori, the live ops platform built specifically for the games industry, lets you run live events, A-B tests, deliver dynamic content to players, and always keep your game growing. Nakama, the industry's leading open source game server, lets you develop locally, providing all social and competitive features for your game, and then seamlessly transition to their heroic cloud-hosted service and easily scale to meet the largest of audience demands. Find out how to get started at heroiclabs.com. Phil, take us away from more game stuff. We have a new web shop opening up, founded by Justin Kahn, who was one of the co-founders of Twitch. He's pitched it as Shopify for Games, which will also eventually host loyalty programs, dynamic pricing, sales, and all the other things you would expect from a modern e-commerce outfit, all tailored to help drive off-store mobile game IAPs. We're interested to see how that one develops. Developer Direct revealed Indiana Jones and the Great Circle is coming later this year to Xbox and PC and will be available day one on Game Pass. They also announced that Obsidian role-playing game Avowed is in development and Square's Visions of Mana, the first mainline title in the Mana series in over 15 years, has been announced. Century Games, who we've been talking about earlier in the cast, which was the developer of Whiteout Survival, published a game on mobile called Livetopia, which is interesting. It's very weird and certainly not like Whiteout Survival. It turns out that Century Games also has been making Roblox games for a long time. I started to look into this a little bit more. This is based on a Roblox franchise that they had published earlier, which is something we had talked about a couple of casts ago. You know, what if you take Roblox franchises and port them to mobile, get rid of that high tax that Roblox imposes. Maybe there's something to that. Maybe this is a part of that strategy. Plants vs. Zombies 3, yep, you heard me right. It's it's not dead yet. Enters soft launch. Worldwide release incoming later this year. We've been hearing that this is a gentle launch, not exactly a soft launch for over five years. I mean, when was the last time PopCap did anything? <laughs> Seriously. I was a little disappointed. I played the game. I downloaded it in the Philippines, I think. And the game is not all that much different. And it just doesn't look like it's going to be monetizing well. Uh, it just seemed they had, didn't fix the problems that existed with this game. So we shall see, you know, once it starts soft launching in tier one countries. But yeah, it doesn't look like it's going to do much, but we'll see. King has a Candy Crush match game that is of the Blast format in soft launch right now in the Philippines called Candy Crush Blast. This is an addition to the Candy Crush 3D, which is also in soft launch. Wow, match, playing around with some core mechanics, having a little bit of fun, I don't know. Blast is really hot right now. We've seen Peak. We were talking about Good Job Games, which has a Blast game out there. Things are blasting, popping. Oh my God. (laughs) I would challenge that. I think Blast was really hot, and now I think there's a lot of games that are struggling to break into Blast, to bring it back to where anywhere near where it was before. So let's see. I'm hopeful for King. I haven't played the game yet. I'll take a look, but... Blast, I think it's not as easy as we think. I've been trying to pay a little bit more attention to top download charts on console, and it turns out that on Nintendo Switch, Disney Speedstorm has been a top 10 download charter for the last couple months. I guess that's a suck it for us as we shat on this game from Gameloft. There's a mobile skew, but it looks like people are just so desperate for a live service Mario Kart type experience that they've settled for whatever this is. But it's something for Gameloft. I don't know if I want to give them any credit yet. I don't know how it's monetizing, but coming in number six is pretty impressive. It's done that for quite some time since it's released on the Switch. How do they get this data? Yeah, where's this from? This is direct from the eShop. They rank things. How? I thought they didn't release this information, but okay. There's a top download chart on the eShop that you can look at. Every console has it. So it's easy to get ordinal ranks. You can't get specific numbers, but at least you can get position. Okay. And is this for what period of time? This was for December. Interesting. Okay. The finals continues to decline. This week, it looked like it lost another 20 to 25% of PSU on Steam. Just really, really sad to see Embark look like this one is going to slip through their fingers. They still have not done a big content update since the game was released. We'll continue to check back on this one, but it's just been level drop after level drop, despite having what would appear to be a couple set of legs at the beginning. Paul World 
hit five million in sales, or actually six million in sales as of this writing. I was checking out their earlier tweets. We're certainly going to be talking about that game. We're going to be getting those take machines going. Huge weekend for a game no one appeared to know about before this weekend. Although we did cover it actually we did. very early on last year. I was excited about this. It looked fucking nuts and it delivered on the insanity. I've one other kind of quick hit to add. Doesn't really fit into a category, so I kind of chucked it at the end, but a friend of Deconstructor of Fun. Kim Nordstrom launched his book Up, Down, Up on Amazon. He spent two years interviewing over 100 of the industry's most successful founders, CEO, bigwigs, about lessons learned and how they got their companies to either greatness or what they learned from it. Biggest wins and biggest disasters. He's part of the Slack group. If you have any questions, I just got my copy. I'm very excited to read about it. He is a first ballot Swedish game dev hall of famer. When you come off the Orlando airport here in Sweden, they put on all the famous heads of like, you know, Swedish Nobel Prize scientists or actors. Uh, Kim, I'm happy to support your ballot, your entry. Let me know what I need to do. <laughs> the big fish in the small pond in Sweden. Is that what it's all about? Okay, I get yeah, it. It was like ABBA. <laughs> you know, the King founders are there too. I've, I've never met someone that's like so opinionated, energetic, and knowledgeable. Like he's a very good guy. He doesn't like what I say. I think like maybe 20, 30% of the time, but that's fine. Yeah. He's a good guy. And I'm, I will read this book and I don't read. So. Awesome. <laughs> Crest reads for the first time. Good job, Kim. <laughs> okay. Let's get into the top stories. I'm super excited. I actually dug into the, God, I felt like it was like going back in time to when I was working on new game features and having to read all the Apple documentation. So I popped in, we know there's been this huge case. And one of the outcomes is that developers are now free to push iOS players into US web shop to make in-game purchases. And all the documentation contains the caveats to this. It feels like Apple's complying with like the letter of the law, but defying the spirit a bit. So I'm going to just kind of run through some of the rules. So don't get too excited yet because there's a lot. One, you can't discourage users from purchasing IEPs because obviously they don't want to lose their share. You can't open a web view. So everyone here that shops on Instagram, like you pop up the window and you're like, oh, I'm going to buy that really cute saying. It keeps you in Instagram. Like you are buying through Instagram. This is something you can't do in the app. So they are literally taking you out of that, which as a game developer, you don't want. You want to keep people in the game. So if you're going to have this web shop, it can't look like Apple's IP. So it's going to be a bit jarring. You can't display the link to your web shop more than once. So choose your spot carefully. The link can't be displayed in any pop-up or user flow that's part of the current purchase path. And, you know, if you've built any type of shop and you want to, like, push purchases, the purchase flow is incredibly important. So Apple is deliberately trying to keep it very separate. You can't put anything on your App Store page about it. And then there's a template to use. So they want it to have a specific look and feel, and it can't look like a button. I feel like they took all the best practices about how to do monetization in games, and they were like, all right, you can't follow basically any of them. And then the interesting bit for the commission, Apple is charging a commission on digital purchases, which is 27%. I believe the 3% delta is for the credit card transaction fees. The commission is on digital purchases initiated within seven days from your link out. So someone clicks on your link, they go to your web shop. Maybe they don't buy today, but maybe they buy tomorrow or the day after. That still counts towards what you have to pay Apple. There's like one exception if you're part of their small business program or if it's auto renewal. So you have a subscription service in your game and the user has been part of it for two years, then your commissions drop to 12%. One question is, how is Apple going to police this? And what they're saying right now is initially you have to provide a transaction report within 15 calendar days of each month. And I love this little tidbit. If Apple develops an API for reporting, developers will be required to integrate it so there's no funny business. No surprises. What do you think? <laughs> no. What your opinions on this? Yeah, no, no surprises whatsoever. I mean, Eric Seifert has had just absolutely impeccable coverage of this from the beginning when a lot of these cases were coming out. And if you were following that, you know, he mentioned both South Korea and the Netherlands had individual court cases or regulatory requirements where in-app payment processors were 
allowed to be utilized. And Apple took their pound of flesh in those too. I think what people are missing from this coverage, and it's something that I'm still trying to figure out as well, is that there were two clauses to what was struck down in the injunction that the judge handed in this Epic v. Apple case. That's what set a lot of this in motion, is that injunction standing by not choosing to have the Supreme Court review the case. And so one of the clauses is exactly what we've been talking about. It's that 30% that Apple takes. But there's this other clause, which is the anti-steering clause that prevents you from communicating with your customers that may be interested in a web shop if you have one. So if you got their email address through the in-app signup, you cannot contact them and tell them about an alternative web shop through email, which is to me one of the most egregious things Apple can do. That clause is also now gone. So if you collect the email address in-app, you can email them and tell them about the web shop. Now, the thing that I'm still trying to piece together is Eric Seifert had reported earlier that this was stricken down in another class action lawsuit in the United States. And we know a lot of developers have just been skirting this rule altogether and just been emailing people anyways. And Apple has struggled to have enforcement. So it's something that I'm still trying to sort out and piece together. But to me, the big part of this is actually the anti-steering clause that's being removed rather than the in-app payment processor. Because if that's the case, and if you can email people about web shops... And again, like I, I think it's important to remember the, the difference here is a web shop happens without being linked in app. Like this is where Apple wants their pound of flesh. You know, if you're playing a Supercell game and you click a button in the Supercell game, no matter what, Apple wants their pound of flesh from that. But if I initiated everything from the web to begin with from an email link, if I never touch the app in this flow, then Apple has not been able to collect their 30%. This is why web shops can exist today and Apple doesn't collect their 30%. So I think this anti-steering thing is actually the big news, although... I haven't seen a lot of people cover it. Everyone's really focused on outrage around Apple's, you know, getting their 30% completely justified. But I'd love to see Exola or one of these web shop payment processors come out and probably say something a little bit more definitive about this. But what's bugging me about this is that the coverage was like this was a huge win for Sweeney and Epic. And it wasn't at all. Like this is Apple being Apple. Right. I don't think that's fair. Really? Because I think this is another domino that continues to fall in Apple's 30% cut being removed. Because now we're going to have the infrastructure in place. We're going to have time to build the infrastructure in the web. And I think that makes it a lot easier for regulators to remove that final barrier of Apple's tax. To me, it's a domino. I agree it's not a big win, but I think it's another domino. I guess maybe it was the coverage more so than the actuality of them getting one step closer to something. Because this wasn't a win, but this was a one step towards a win. Winning the battle and not the war or something like that, right? Because... Not only did the 27% thing happen, but they also have these like insane pop-ups that you're about to go to an external website. Apple's not responsible for privacy or security or purchase. You know, 95% of the people are going to be like, fuck off. I'm not doing that. That's scary. You know, like, why would you do that? It's like the same thing with sideloading. Like these warnings are such a huge, huge deterrent from moving on over. But I guess what you're saying is that this is just one step towards uh, removing all these barriers and that you can immediately go to a, a web shop. Sorry if you guys mentioned that, but I thought also another thing with this is this is only for use in the U.S. because it's a U.S. law that's happening. And obviously, the Netherlands and I think South Korea were already done by those country laws. But isn't that the case here? This isn't a worldwide thing. This is just in the U.S. And we'll be in the EU soon. Yeah, because of the DMA. Okay. But overall, I agree that these aren't the wins you're looking for in doing my best Obi-Wan impression. Oh my God. Boomer. <laughs> <laughs> Obi-Wan reference, Boomer. Star Wars. <laughs> uh, star it's timeless. It is time. Okay, fine. fine. In another place where we don't see any wins, GameIndustry.biz has an article which is basically parroting what Cress has been saying on the podcast for a really long time, that the industry is facing a few more years of pain before we see the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> Uh, this guy actually wrote a really good article kind of summarizing his discussions with a bunch of people that are in gaming, publishing people, development and investors, et cetera, and a couple of CEOs. So, like, Christopher Dring, Game Industry Biz, wrote the piece. Oh, I don't know him. Do you know him? He floats around. He's an editor. I think it's worth calling out who wrote the piece. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, so I thought it was a really good summary, or maybe only because it's reinforcing my ideas, but whatever, you know, that's the way the world works. Okay, so basically the summary here is that he expects continued turmoil expected through 24 and 25, and the contributors are like high interest rates, 
oversaturation of video game stores, cautious investors, et cetera. And then all this will likely lead to more restructuring and layoffs and closures in the industry, which is like one point that I, I actually do agree with. Yeah, in 2024, versus the year of layoffs, we see, should see a year of closures across the ecosystem. Generally speaking, like there was an overproduction of games in 20 and 21 that has led to kind of a market saturation. And there's just not enough audience for all these games to be successful. And also the publishers are not interested in volume. They're interested in quality, right? So they're not going to be publishing a gajillion games just because they're being made. They just want to focus on a few games every year. And that has been the strategy for the big publishers for a long time. And while self-publishing is still an option, it's still not particularly good for things like console games. And certainly mobile is tough in terms of the amount of money you need. And then there are external factors, including the interest rate thing, and then government spending during the pandemic, which led towards obviously insane amounts of money being flooded into the gaming industry. We will no longer see that. But, and this is the but that I want to make sure, is that I personally think, and this is what the kind of conclusion that he drew from this, is that while it's bleak for the next couple of years in the gaming space, after kind of this doldrums for the last three years, I think we will be stronger position, you know, it's an absolutely massive industry. And once we kind of cull the herd a little bit, I think we'll be in a much better position in, you know, two or three years from here. So my thoughts have been very similar for the last year or so. You know, the industry is huge. It was oversaturated with lots of hypes and lots of dumb money, lots of dumb money coming in 21, 22, and even dumb money in 23. Despite the clear challenges in this this industry, we're still seeing some investments from certain players that don't make a lot of sense. 2023 was kind of the reckoning, and 2024 will be kind of long hangover, and it will continue to be painful. And we should see tons of studio closures in theory, right? Because a lot of like the blockchain stuff was invested, mobile, the free-to-play stuff. There's just not a lot of room for these products. And I'm not going to name names, Mr. Philip, because that's not cool. But I think there's going to be a positive outlook for the industry after the next couple of years of pain. And I will add, as I've said many times in this podcast, what I think real growth requires for this industry is a new successful form factor or platform, VR, AR, metaverse, a new like broad game genre, something that brings more people to spend more dollars in an interactive, you know, a share shift away from other forms of entertainment. So anyway, that's kind of my take. I thought it was a really good article kind of just summarizing the state of the state, right? And never excited about any type of studio closures. I think it's really sad. It's really tough for everyone going through it. The only aspect of this I do want to touch on that you mentioned is it's quoted as there are too many unprofitable businesses in video games and there's just too many unprofitable games. I agree that the filtering process is going to change. And to be frank, I think it needs to. There are way too many games that were greenlit that shouldn't have been greenlit or they should have been canceled when they were struggling. We covered Redfall. I think even Phil Spencer mentioned that probably should have been canceled. Forspoken would be an example. Or they should have been paused in favor of games that were a better bet that needed like more support to go from good to great. I'm excited to see a shift towards more focus, more quality of games. I think we need to spend a bit more time instead of kind of throwing shit at the wall, figuring out how we're going to be serving like a very saturated player base. Like they, they have so much to choose from. How are we going to elevate the experiences and the creative output that we're giving them? And I think it's going to ultimately be better for the games that are made. And I also want to say that there's more on the leadership decision making too. They need to take more accountability. They need to be better informed about the markets and what players want in the opportunity spaces and be focusing more on that. The little bit I wanted to add was agreeing that we're in this retraction and consolidation phase after we all got super high on the COVID demand drug that came in and the free money that we had with the zero interest rates. So the story I wanted to tell was being at a startup going through this wild ride when it was happening. So we got just punched in the face with the reality that hit us last year. So in 21, it was like, we free money. Everyone's getting money. We're raising money. We had a lot to do, all kinds of resources. And then we actually had a deal with Snapchat. It was publicly announced so I can talk about it. And that didn't even save us. Right? We're a startup. We're like, we just did a long-term deal with Snapchat. This is going to be awesome. And then when the economy started to tank, Snap killed the entire games to business, like just completely wiped it out. 
And, you know, that was all because of the market shifting and things happening. And so as a startup, we just couldn't really pivot and come out of that in a significant way. So my startup's actually still alive and we're still trying to make a couple of things work, but you know, that's just the reality of what happens when everything kind of comes together. So rather than doing more of a take, here's some advice. If you're in this spot and you're at a startup or you're looking at different things, what are the decisions you can make knowing where we're headed? So number one is hone your expertise. Don't go doing something new. We talk about this all the time. If you're a single player you know, expertise, don't go make a live service game. If you do simulation games, don't all of a sudden say, I'm gonna make a shooter. Everybody is looking for folks that have deep expertise in the genre or the games that they've made in the past. So number two is, this is gonna sound a little crazy because we make fun of VR, AR and MR all the time, but if you have any experience in this, you better be making something for the Apple Vision Pro. You know, getting on these platforms early is a way, and Laura's jumping for joy that I'm saying this, yes. but I'm being very narrow in my advice here. If you have experience, pre-sales are at 160 to 180,000 units. So that's a good early sign. Version one of any Apple device is awful, but version two is a fast follow, and that's where there starts to be more adoption. If this thing takes off, you're there. Chris, this is only for the 10 you people are, in the world. Jen, you are out of yeah, your effing mind. You know, like, dude, this is a fail. This is the, like the worst fail ever because there's no one that's going to support it because it's a ridiculous device. There's no money to build games or build experiences even for something like this. No. Okay. No, what you should be focused sure. is a UEFN and Roblox. That's okay. it. Like, if you're a startup... Do not go after this stupid product that makes no sense in the marketplace. That's fine. I know these folks. There is a specialty that they have to develop for these types of experiences. If you're already doing that, make something for them. Okay, fine. Jen, I'm with you on this. I think this is a version one, version two, three, four. It's going to start to move and be a lot more adopted. And then we're going to be like, oh, why aren't people making games for this? Where's the Beat Saber for this? Okay, anyway. So let's get on to something that is not as controversial, which is there's never been a better time to partner with IP to de-risk your project than right now. So if you have something that where you can go do a license, you can get IP on board, all of this does in this environment is it de-risks your overall portfolio. So if you do this and you're doing a contract, try to negotiate to recoup your UA spend you will thank me for doing this because this can help kind of balance out how much you're actually paying for the license with how much UA you need to do. This isn't for everybody. Again, Cress is trying to decide if he wants to shit on this comment or not. No, I don't mind this okay, one. All right. See, I told you we were going to get to something you agree with. And then my final piece of advice is don't run to PC and console thinking the grass is greener on the post IDFA lawn. It is not necessarily greener if you are only doing this to get away from the UA challenges. It is not any better on that side. In fact, it's more ancient and harder to deal with. So those are my pieces of advice for folks just given where we're headed. Or it could be cheaper to copy an IP without the brand name. Yes, yes. exactly. In fact, my last piece of advice <laughs> on this point is to make games with cute monsters, give them guns and borrow in quotes from well-known IPs. But wait, hey, hey, so somebody did that, right, Phil? Did somebody do that? This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. 
And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstruct or Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. The games industry is experiencing unprecedented growth, with global revenues projected to reach a staggering $268 billion by 2025. But with more players than ever connecting across platforms and devices, how can your game stand out against the competition? AppsFlyer has created AppsFlyer for Games to help you unlock your player's true LTV by providing a wealth of game measurement solutions, unique industry insights, and proven best practices. Our dedicated hub is packed with innovative products, industry partnerships, and unrivaled expertise to ensure your game brand adapts and thrives. We understand that every game is unique and AppsFlyer's data-driven insights allow us to cater to your specific needs. We know that in today's evolving landscape, staying ahead of the curve is crucial. Trust in AppsFlyer for games to guide you through this exciting journey. We have the tools, the knowledge, and the passion to help you succeed in this ever-expanding landscape. Together, we'll conquer new worlds, both real and fantasy, break records, and create gaming experience that leave a lasting impact. Get in touch with AppsFlyer for games today and unleash your game's true potential. AppsFlyer for games, supercharging the gaming landscape. Paw World is here. I could not be more excited about this. Paw World has something for everyone in terms of the take machine. We have crazy sale numbers. We're developing in a hot genre, survival crafting. We've been talking about that. Blizzard has already announced that they're going to be taking a stab at it. There's an AI angle here. Looks like they may have been using AI, which artists were getting all up in arms about. There's memeable content which we'll be talking about, about some translations that happened. Also just Pokemon with guns, which was what attracted everyone to begin with. There's Steam and console dynamics in this, about early access, about Xbox. This was not on PlayStation. This was a PC and Xbox release. There's a Web3 angle. Can you believe it? it? Turns out the founder of the company used to launch a crypto exchange. So maybe Web3 will be coming in the future. Maybe that's how you're going to trade Power Worlds. Who knows? But if you're Chris Heatherly, you're, you got to jump on those takes ASAP. It's on Game Game Pass. We can talk about Game Pass again. Japanese studio in Steam? Are they back? Is Japan back to developing these types of experiences? It's been a while since we've seen a Japanese developer take a swim like this. And no PlayStation either, which is pretty interesting. And I think there's a lot going on here with the golden cohort theory, which we sometimes talk about with UA and marketing folk. You know, your golden cohort's the greatest. Usually in mobile, you try to save that golden cohort. You try to pair the best version of the game with the highest monetizing audience. You know, does it make sense to just say, screw it and get the game out there and earn some money? There's takes for everyone, but let's go over the bio information. As of this recording, it has sold over 6 million copies in early access at about $30 a pop. And again, I'm just so disappointed they didn't have a deluxe edition. They could have easily cashed in on some more money if they just got that average selling price up. They sold a soundtrack. So whatever intern got that soundtrack in there, I'm sure its soundtrack alone is doing $5 million. <laughs> It is a Japanese studio. They are based in Tokyo. And from an interview that their founder, or at least a blog post their founder had posted, which, you know, there can always be translation errors. But it looks like they're about 50 headcount, which is a lot more than I expected. And they've taken $7 million in venture capital. They have one other game in early access. It was released a while ago called Craftopia. It looks like it's largely been abandoned, mostly just quality of life updates. The game itself, Power World, as we've been mentioning, is Pokemon with guns, or at least that's how it's been subscribed. But it is a survival crafting game, and I actually think it gets a lot wrong about this, which is it's in many ways a squad RPG meta collector with some awesome sinks for your creatures in that they can help build your base. So you can collect Pokemon and they will help your economy loop. They will help craft resources. They will help build your home. There's actually a lot there that I think is being overlooked and actually has the potential to do some genre level innovation. And of course, I, I want to end with one of the quotes in the founders. And he, he had an earlier blog post, which I thought was great. And he published it before the game launched about just how nervous he was, how much they put into this, the crazy stories of them switching from Unity to Unreal. This one to me is the wildest. He says, we didn't really know which one we'd work. So we copied all the files onto a flash drive every day. Every week, we'd buy a bucket of new flash drives. Boy, there are some producers right now who are just like shitting the bed at that quote. They didn't even have version control 
I mean, Monday was great, as I think we all know. Like, I call it Power World Take Monday. It was a blast. This is what the internet was good at. Everyone had takes. Information was coming out at lightning speed. And if you didn't have the latest information, people would dunk on you, which was great. Like, this is what I think the internet is actually really good at, is servicing and disseminating information very quickly. Has anyone else had a chance to play this? I got about 15 hours in. 15 hours? Holy crap. Yeah, I tried for a couple hours, and I'm like, I mean, I got the gist of it, but I got to get back into it. But I have to say, Mr. Phil, like there's no microtransaction. What happened to the free-to-play future that you are describing in every fucking podcast, right? It's early access. There's still time. Premium for the win. There's still time. And first of all, they should have sold some fucking Pokeballs. You think what they could have done in a Pokeball business? Dude, uh, look, I'm, I'm actually agreeing with you on this one, dude. Like this is like ripe yeah. to do a free-to-play model. I just don't think they had the resources or the runway probably to get it all done, I would imagine. So clearly, this did not take only $7 million to make. I want to make sure that people understand that. They took money from Microsoft for the exclusivity and to be part of the Game Pass. And it looks like it's paying off for Microsoft, which was, which was a big win for them. But it is a premium discounted game, like $30. There's, that's it, right? There's nothing else to buy. There's nothing else to do as a publishing. And I want to also say that this, I know people are going to hit me, hate me for this, while Certain aspects may have been innovative. This was not an innovation, right? They literally combined survival and Pokemon, right? And Pokemon Company should have done this game eons ago, right? They've been skirting around doing like console PC games forever, right? But they've been had this exclusivity with Nintendo, which is just stupid, right? In my opinion, anyway. But I mean, it's been successful for them, so it's not stupid. It's just... They could have done this type of game ages ago and, and been extremely successful, but they have not really released a console game cross-platform ever, right? So these guys literally copy Pokemon. And there are some game developers that are saying that the way the actual characters are designed are, is too similar to Pokemon to be not copied, if that makes sense. And I don't understand the technical jargon behind it. So anyway, this is a really well-executed design against a Pokemon survival mashup. And the company has been around since 2015. And they basically, what's crazy is they kind of had a Zelda meets Farmville game, was was Craftopia. It was crazy. It was like, I mean, they must love Nintendo. I mean, they clearly are Nintendo fanboys. So anyway, it was a very ambitious game back then. It's done about 600,000 copies. So huge success. Obviously, this is another indication of how big the market is for gaming, that something like this can take off. And like, we are still in a hit-driven business to some degree. But this was, again, not an innovation. This was more of a combination of popular genres, I would argue. Absolutely agree with you, Chris. In fact, this is a positioning gold medal of what they did here, which is they took a genre that is super interesting, this survival crafting genre that's been taking off, and they found and married a really cool and different positioning with it, which is cute characters with guns or Pokemon with guns, if that's what you want to say. You know, they call them pals. And they landed inside of a little bit of a blue ocean spot within the genre. So I loved seeing the internet take off. It reminded me a little bit of what Lego Fortnite was doing, where Lego Fortnite, when it was announced, had all of that great momentum. People were loving it. And then they kind of have been trailing off because there's not as much to do. What I am interested to see is if they're able to keep the momentum going, if there's enough there. I watched a lot of streams on this where folks talked about there's not a lot of story. There's not a lot of like other things to do, although the base building is really deep. So that's just the one thing is, you know, is this a flash in the pan or is it going to sustain? I think, Phil, your LinkedIn post was basically all about this, which is like, this could be flash in the pan, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the other comparison here, which is really interesting, is Temtem, which was another Pokemon-like IP that was more traditional turn-based combat, closer to the original Pokemon formula that has done 1 million copies, but it's never really had a, a big moment, even during its global release, never really had a big moment. But a lot of these games that go viral peak really early. We talked about Valheim, you know, a bunch of podcasts ago, that game peaked, didn't really go anywhere. So there's been these cases of games peaking and then not being able to persist. 
I think a lot of it is, especially when you don't have an ongoing revenue stream, you're not able to really grow revenue. And so what I think happens to a lot of these developers is that they essentially become lifestyle businesses, which is exactly what I saw with something like No Man's Sky, which is that you're able to make enough money just selling new copies of the game to be able to support, let's say, a 50 headcount studio. And I think that's really where this maxes out, that you can continue to deliver content. It's not an aggressive amount of content. It isn't, I think, equivalent to like a, you know, a AAA season, but essentially becomes a lifestyle business and they've already announced some features that are coming to the game which I was really excited about embark are you paying attention just put up a freaking PNG file you don't have to commit to that much you can make it super vague but they've already committed to things like endgame content they've committed to things like better server management there's a lot that I think is really positive the fact they have 50 headcount was really surprising to me hopeless scale studios these games have peaked. I think what I would say here is that there are very clear content pipelines that I think keep this one going, which hasn't been the case in a lot of these other games. Like being able to add just more pals in Power World is like obvious. Of course, you should do that. PvP, like there are very clear loops here that I think when added will clearly beat the number of hours that they need to produce in terms of the amount of engagement it will bring. And again, the game's in early access. They've probably cleared what? 150 million, 200 million gross right now. So they have money sitting in the bank. They certainly could raise capital right now if they wanted to. I'm sure, like, you know, Griffin Gaming Partners is in their inbox right now with an offer. You know, I hope they'll do this. Like, I don't want this to become a lifestyle business. And I was I was arguing with people on the internet about this, which is always a good thing to do. Why can't it just be what it is? Why can't you just leave it alone? And it, it certainly can be. You can be those things. You can do whatever you want when you're a founder of a company. But I think, like, each game has its own life. And I want to see each individual game reach its full potential. And you need headcount. You need capital to make that happen. And I think there's just a lot of juice to squeeze out of this one. It's got just a lot of, I think, really compelling loops. I don't agree that there's no innovation here. I think PALS and the economy management loops are significant, the survival crafting genre, and will persist beyond it. But I hope they do more with this franchise. I hope they throw more money at it. I hope they reinvest that money, and I hope they continue to grow it with MTX. And and that's fair. And I think as a marketer, too, I'm always looking to be like, how can we make this bigger? And you guys have been incredibly respectful by not bringing this topic up. So I'll do it on behalf of everyone. I want to applaud Brazil. So apparently in Brazil, pal means, I'm just going to say it, everybody, pal means dick. And so all of the marketing materials are double entendres, aka dick jokes, or maybe it's just really bad localization. And so because I have an eight-year-old boy sense of humor, I thought this was like, completely spot on for the audience. You know, this is something you can let the audience run with. So the meme factory is on fire with this. So thanks to Luis Piccini in our deconstructor of fun Slack for capturing some of the fun here. Go on there and see some of the translations. I won't repeat too many of them, but super, super funny. All right. No joke here. Supercell is doubling down on Brawl Stars as a MOBA that works. Although I disagree in calling it a MOBA, but Phil, do you want to get into Supercell? Supercell's Brawl Star GM, Frank Kineberg, told Mobile Gamer Biz that his team has expanded from around 20 in the summer of 2020 to over 45 today. He says, this is completely down to the individual teams, and some of our teams started to experiment also with remote hires. In Brawl, we are working in a hybrid mode today, but we expect people to be in the office two to three days per week. He also mentions we were never able to explore the limits of how much cosmetic content our players would actually prefer, for example, mainly due to headcount limitations. So this is another example of a team in Supercell scaling. If you've been following Clash of Clans, the OG Supercell title, that game is continuing to rake in money and they've grown headcount significantly. And it looks like that is the first experiment that was successful and we're going to continue to see this scale out to other Supercell teams. But of course, it's up to the teams themselves. I love when we talk about team scaling and ways of working and process and awesome that Supercell is adapting the way they work to the realities of today's landscape. We touched a little bit on it when we were talking about the games that are coming out. To compete, you need a lot of content. Like Pal World's going to need it. All these games are going to need it. And you're going to need redundancies, not in the sense of removing people, but in the sense of having duplicate contributors removing single ports of failure. And if you look at the games like Whiteout Survival and Township, Like they're examples of how where we're moving, at least in mobile, is you need to make it really hard to leave your game. And to do that, you need a lot of content. There's just no way around it. There are so many features. You got to keep players playing and spending. And they talk a little bit about 
cosmetics that they want to be able to address quality of life features that players are asking for, as well as put more cosmetics into these games. And they're obviously looking to scale their teams. But I also hope they're looking at how AI generated assets can aid them. Not in the sense like they shouldn't be hiring, but in the sense that they can increase their output even further as, you know, editing is much easier and faster than creating. And they're hiring juniors. They never used to hire juniors. They were totally against juniors. You can't think of better ways to ramp up talent in the studio. They're going to adapt to your culture. You're going to bring them in. They're going to learn. And then they're going to be the next wave of greats that come through. I enjoyed this article. I think it was a talk delivered at PGC Connects in London. Very cool. All right. I think that wraps us up for this week. Anyone got anything else? The only thing I want to make a joke about was I wonder if for Power World, how big the downloads are in Brazil, if they thought they were going to be playing Dick World. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Jeez, you guys are such children. I mean, come on. Oh, like you guys aren't thinking it. You just didn't want to get canceled on a podcast. When I'm the adult in the room, you know, we got problems. We got real problems. I told you, I have an eight-year-old boy's sense of humor. Like all day long. If it's Eddie Murphy talking about poop, if anyone's seen Raw or Delirious, I forgot which one, where he talks about poop. Oh, it's the funniest stuff on the planet. Okay. (laughs) All right, guys. Until next week. See you later. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.